From the Gert Boyle Studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. The Oregon Shakespeare Festival have a new artistic director on Friday. Tim Bond spent 11 seasons from the mid-90s to the early 2000s at the Ashland-based festival. Now he's returning to become the artistic leader at a time of serious turmoil for the repertory company. OSF's executive director left in January. The previous artistic director, Nataki Garrett, left in April after leading the organization through the pandemic and wildfires and facing death threats for her choice of plays. There has been financial turmoil as well. The festival announced in the spring that they had to raise millions of dollars to save the 2023 season. Tim Bond joins us now to talk about the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and the way forward. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Glad to be here. It's great to have you on. So I know you spent 11 years at OSF. What do you most remember from that time? It's a big chunk of time, but I'm just curious, when you cast your mind back to it, what most stands out? Oh, wow. I have great memories of those days with um, amazing crowds, uh, with people waiting in long lines to get in to see shows, uh, amazing art. You know, a lot of innovative productions of Shakespeare. Uh, we were starting to develop new work then, and uh, a lot of interesting and exciting interpretations of other classics. And, uh, you know, the outdoor theater where you go out and you see the stars, and um, it's just a magical place. So, uh, yeah, lots of great memories. <laughs> You've directed and worked all over the world and all over the country in Seattle, the Bay Area, Syracuse, Milwaukee, Dallas, Louisville, and on and on. What do you think is unique about the Oregon Shakespeare Festival? Well, you know, this this place has always been called uh, a gathering place. Um, it was it was it's sort of the meaning of the whole area uh, from way back uh, when it was only indigenous people here. It's always been a, an important meeting spot, and so there's some energy here that says. This is a place for people to gather in a social place uh, to tell stories, to uh, experience music, to uh, now experience drama. Um, and, uh, you know, the Chautauqua was here way back um, in the uh, 18th, uh, 1800s. Um, and then Angus Bomer uh, decided that he thought the shell of the old Chautauqua building uh, might make uh, a rep interesting replication of the the globe theater from shakespeare and it has gathered people now for 88 years to see amazing shakespeare productions and uh, other works and people come and they also go and go hiking in the area in the mountains they go uh, rafting um there's it's just a really special place to to give yourself a theater vacation and uh, and experience the great outdoors and and uh, great shops in town and all that kind of stuff. In yeah. some job interviews, the interviewee has as many questions for their prospective employer as the employer does. Was that the case here? Oh, always for me, <laughs> you know, you always want to find out how things are going, where things are at. And um, of course, things have changed here and evolved in uh, in many wonderful ways. And there have been challenges as well. Um, and uh, my, you know, the main goals I was trying to find out is what direction the theater was wanting to move in and um, and uh, 
where we were at financially and all those sorts of things. And the answers I got were not surprising, given uh, what I knew uh, from both the news and from friends who are still here. Um, but it felt very encouraging in those conversations about the direction we're moving in and what the potential still is here. As we're all recovering from the pandemic um, uh, in the theater community across America, um, every theater I know are having their challenges and uh, OSF is not unique in the challenges we have. We share them with many, many other companies right now and we're all looking to find ways of uh, bringing audiences back. Um, and the great news I can tell you is that uh, we are getting a, a much stronger return of audience this season compared to last season. Um, we think we're going to end up about 15,000 uh, tickets sold more than uh, in 2022. And student groups are coming back. Um, that was a big a big blow for many theaters and OSF as well, because, you know, when COVID happened, uh, the schools sort of shut down field trips and all that. But we're getting student groups back. Um, we're going to have twice as many students this season as we saw last year. So the trend is moving in the right direction. <laughs> so did the board then give you some indication of the direction that they would like to see the Shakespeare Festival take in the coming years? Yes, um, but they also very much have entrusted uh, myself and uh, our interim executive director, Tyler Hokama, uh, who joined the company about three months ago, um, with sort of being able to analyze, you know, where our challenges are, where we want to go. Um, we both also, you know, know the company through uh, decades and um are going to be returning some programs uh, that the board was really excited to hear that we wanted to return to. Uh, one of them being uh, getting back our vital and robust and impactful education programs and engagement programs. Uh, the FAIR program, which is a, a program uh, that deals with, uh, uh, you know, training the next generation of, uh, of theater artists and administrators and uh, and, um, you know, keeping a strong emphasis on Shakespeare in the programming, uh, continuing our new work development. Uh, those are all things the board was interested in and that uh, was absolutely in alignment with what my uh, goals and uh, interests were. So it was it was sort of a match you know, mm. <laughs> right off the top. I should just remind folks, if you're just tuning in, we're talking right now with Tim Bond, who's about to become the new artistic director of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. He officially takes over the post on September 1st, which is this Friday. This has been called a kind of homecoming, given that uh, Tim Bond served as the associate artistic director of the festival for 11 seasons in the late 90s through the early 2000s. Tim Nataki Garrett, the last artistic director, made a concerted effort to broaden the kinds of plays put on there, including more plays by long marginalized voices. And just because there's only so many <laughs> stages there, even though you can actually do more than most theaters, five or six plays in any given week, it also meant fewer plays by Shakespeare, which led to, as I know you know, complaints by some longtime supporters in local op-eds. And it got much worse than that. Uh, Nataki Garrett received death threats, and she was forced to hire a security team. 
I'm curious what all that looked like to you in the last few years from the outside. Well, um, yeah, it was, uh, I have the deepest respect for Nataki and think she's incredibly talented. And um, I wasn't here during that period. So it's, it's a little difficult to speak about it uh, because I, I wasn't around, but I can just say that, you know, any form of discrimination and form of attacks uh, whether verbal or physical uh, are unacceptable. Um, and so I got to acknowledge that off the top and and say that, you know, I'm coming into this role with an open heart, uh, with optimism that we can come together for a greater purpose, ensuring that this beloved theater is around for generations to come. Uh, I, I, uh, I have a lot of love for this community. I raised my family here. I... Uh, uh, I I love this company and you know the the these uh, voices that came out you know saying the negative things they said um, this is happening all over the country I mean uh, you know our former president uh, you know uh, and other politicians have sort of ignited um, culture wars that have. Uh, given permission to people to say all sorts of terrible things and create a lot of difficulty. And I, uh, I, I find those kinds of comments uh, unacceptable and, and, and really divisive. So I, I won't get too much into it other than to say that the kind of programming actually that uh, uh, my predecessor was doing and, and, and the artistic director before her, uh, Bill Rausch, and back when I was there, Libby Apple have always been moving more towards becoming inclusive of voices that have been marginalized. I think the challenge that happened coming out of the pandemic, which is the bulk of the time that that uh, Nataki was here, um, was that there were fewer shows able to happen and less money able to be put towards productions because of uh, audiences not coming back. And so those smaller shows by necessity were not Shakespeare immediately. And then this season, which we're, was programmed in Nataki, has uh, two out of the five shows are Shakespeare. So I think it's actually back, getting back on track already. Um, and so I'm gonna continue to build on the long legacy we have of uh, Shakespeare and other plays all living together in conversation in an exciting way. How do you think about that balance between Shakespeare and modern or contemporary plays? And it's also worth saying that that Shakespeare can be done in a in a very contemporary way. It's it's not quite as as binary as even that question may imply, but but on some yes. level it's either going to be yes. a Shakespeare play or or something else, something that that hasn't even been written yet or was written 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, we don't do pumpkin pants very much anymore. I don't know what that is. Well, those are, you know, the the Shakespearean Elizabethan style clothing of that P- period. Pumpkin that pants. People, okay, yeah, I'll add that to pants. my to That's my Lego. Yes, um, you know, I, I think it's just you know us really uh, finding. A, 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 there's always been a balance of like we would do three, maybe four, but usually three Shakespeare out of eleven shows. Um, 
So that's somewhere around 30%. Um, Meaning and, in the in the 90s or in like 2002, you're saying like going yes. back a ways now, it, it wasn't like it was 90% Shakespeare. It's never been. It was only that maybe back in the 40s and 50s. By the 60s and 70s, Oregon Shakespeare Festival was already beginning to add other classics. And then by the 70s, uh, more uh contemporary works alongside it. So well, the then balance, let, let me put you know, it to you this that. way. I mean, do, do, then how much do you think the complaints in recent years have been about the demographics of the person at the top, the fact that it was a black woman who was the leader? Well, uh, I, I can't speak to people's motivations. I think it's a, I think that it is a very difficult situation coming out of the pandemic when you have, when you're going from what was uh, 10 or 11 shows a season down to, uh, there was one show done in 2021. Uh, there was, uh, there were five shows done, uh, you know, this season. When you have that few compared to what had been, there's just a general sense of loss. And I don't think, uh, I don't mean to be, uh, put anyone down, but I don't know that audiences necessarily really are able to look at the whole picture when they're reacting to how they feel about what they see or don't see. I mean, there's no way you can produce more than two Shakespeare's out of five with the economy we currently have um, and be balanced in the ways we used to be. So I think those, those criticisms are are taken a little out of context. Um, Let's turn to money then before in the, in the time we have yeah. left, because in April, the company announced a $2.5 million fundraising effort to, quote, save the 2023 season. Mm-hmm. You're the artistic director now, not the executive director. So more focused on on the content, the stuff, as opposed to the money. But there's a connection between everything. I'm curious what you heard in the questions that you asked that, that made you say, yes, I, I will take this job on now. I I trust that there will be shows <laughs> that I can be yes. the the artistic director for. Oh, yeah. there's such an incredible upswell of, of support for Oregon Shakespeare Festival that came out of uh, that when people became aware of of some of the challenges we faced. And we have uh, an amazing amount of people from not just the uh, Oregon, in the state of Oregon, but from California, from Washington state, and across the nation who really stepped up to uh, to support us. Um, the board of directors is very involved in, in this support. Um, uh, Tyler Hokama coming on as executive director, uh, made a big difference for me, knowing that that uh, he was going to be here, and that whole leadership team and staff of the theater are, are top-notch uh, artists and technicians and, and administrators. So, uh, and the board really being clear that there's going to be a lot clearer uh, oversight of making sure that we are financially responsible and sustainable in our programming, and all of that felt like music to my ears like this is an organization who's really paying attention to how we're going to be sustainable and continue to provide excellent world-class theater going into the future for the next 88 years and so i felt really good about it you took over at your previous job artistic director of theater works silicon valley in march of 2020 it is hard to imagine a more challenging time to start 
a, a performing arts job right before everything ended. What did you learn from that timing and from, from that time? Uh, how much I love live theater. <laughs> Being in the same space with the audience that uh, we're performing for and how essential that immediate interactivity is between performer and audience, which, you know, I've always known. It's the reason I didn't go into TV and didn't go into film. But boy, did we miss that. Yeah. And coming back, I can't tell you, there was not a performer and not an audience member that I witnessed when we started performing live again that did not break into tears really early on in the performance, realizing how much they missed this interconnectivity or what I also call, you know, like molecular connection with each hmm. other. And 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 theater is needed more now than ever because of what's going on with AI, because of, of our separations from each other that were caused by the pandemic and our fractured democracy right now. And, um, you know, our democracy is built on us being in the same space with each other and coming to some agreements about how to be with one another. And we are uh, in a very difficult moment in this country and in the world. And I think theater is needed more than ever. That's what I learned. <laughs> mm. Those are some big lessons. Um, can you give us a sense for what audiences can expect in next year's season? Well, I think they're going to see world-class uh, theater. They're going to see, uh, uh, you know, at least thirty percent Shakespeare out of out of a mix of that of that and some new work and some um, some other uh, classical work. And they're going to feel uh, some of our longtime favorite actors and uh, directors coming back to do work with us. Uh, I think they're going to feel a homecoming in many many ways uh i'm i'm excited about it we're we're you know in plans now we're we're uh, i don't know when we're going to be able to announce in the next month or so but I, but but we will and i think people will be pleasantly surprised and feel really welcome back uh to uh oregon shakespeare festival to see a lot of what what they're been hoping to see. And I think we're just going to be building on the legacy of, of what's been here for the last 88 years, and they're going to dig it. Tim Bond, congratulations. Uh, and we will talk again. Thank you. Thank you, David. Look forward to it. Tim Bond is the incoming artistic director of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. He officially starts this coming Friday, September 1st. But as I noted earlier, it's been called a kind of homecoming because he served as the associate artistic director of the festival for 11 seasons in the late 1990s to the early 2000s. Finally today, our producer Elizabeth Castillo joins me to read some of your recent feedback. Hey, Elizabeth. Hey, Dave. As of last week, Portland police officers are wearing body cameras as part of a new pilot project. We asked listeners what difference they thought it would make. Jared Maynard wrote on Facebook, I can't see any reasonable argument why the vast majority of, of officers cannot wear one of these while working with the public. Jim Fryer said, accountability will go up and some officers will be fired for behavior on duty and non-compliance with cameras. Jennifer Sordal wrote, it won't be perfect, but it will be better for everyone, including the officers. And Mike Peralt said, it will make a difference only if Portlanders and our city government actually hold them accountable. As it stands, 
We've allowed them to conduct a de facto work stoppage in retaliation for the protests demanding that they quit acting as judge, jury, and executioner. So sure, if we hold our public employees accountable to public oversight, body cams will help. But I don't think we have the political will to stand up to the police union. Last week, we talked about the collapse of the PAC-12 conference and what it could mean for Oregon State University. We asked Beavers fans what they hope to see for the future of the conference. Matt Bell wrote, rename it the Six Pack, better for college t-shirts and branding, plus each team gets a home away matchup with every other team. Matt Kelly wrote, I would hope the remaining four schools would try to regroup and rebuild. Add in Tulane, Southern Methodist, San Diego State, and perhaps Boise. It's not the highest quality conference, but good programs with great growth opportunity. He went on to say, I doubt that's what will happen. The Cougs and Beavs will unfortunately be Mountain West bound. But the conference realignment deal is going to be short-lived before you see the Big Ten and Big 12 start to kick out schools. And the ACC looks to be on the ropes. So if you add carefully now by 2025 or 2026, you could add a few from those conferences. Pipe dreams, but still a fun thought exercise. Earlier this month, we talked to Charlene Williams, the new director of the Oregon Department of Education. We asked listeners what her priorities should be. Chris Bednarik wrote, educating children and preparing them to succeed in the real world. Scott Dunn said, focus on banned books, incorporate them as mandatory reading. Samantha Vembu wrote, we need phonics to be taught in schools again. Banned books don't matter if kids can't read them. We also need to revamp Oregon's math programs. Math is best learned when it's taught explicitly, like reading, and when kids learn through repetition. It's hard to go up levels in math when you cannot add or multiply. Oregon Secretary of State announced earlier this month that she would enforce Measure 113, which bars Republican lawmakers who participated in last session's walkout from running for re-election. David Martin wrote, a court needs to make this decision. Gary Calvin wrote, glad the Secretary of State is holding someone to do the job they were elected to do and to not be re-elected if they choose not to do that job because of their own agendas. We voted for them to represent us and expect them to carry through, which they did not. Sloppy wording or not, you wanted the job, so do it. We also talked about the rise of overdose deaths from synthetic opioids like fentanyl in Multnomah County. Candy Roberts said, I really hope people don't just write this off as limited to chronic drug abusers and addicts. So many people think this doesn't affect them. But my 19-year-old niece took a single pill at a party and died. It was a counterfeit, 100% fentanyl. Candy continued, she was a good kid, supporting herself, gainfully employed, and this was not her typical behavior. A single mistake cost her her life. Even for those who do, who do end up spiraling into addiction, have compassion. We are talking about someone's child or parent or friend. Finally, to end on a lighter note, we talked at the beginning of the month about efforts to bring sea otters back to the Oregon coast. We asked listeners whether they think otters should be reintroduced. Mark Mohan wrote, no. If they can't remember names after the first meeting, <laughs> then that's their problem. April Johnson said, absolutely. They would be there now if not for irresponsible white settlers. Our coastal ecosystem needs them. And Jesse Gorman wrote, they should be introduced to my pool. Hashtag only half kidding. We always welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions. Our voicemail number is... 503-293-1983. You can also email us. Our address is thinkoutloud at opb.org. On Facebook, we are at OPBTOL. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thanks. 
Tomorrow on the show, at least 22 states have passed laws to ban or restrict gender-affirming care for minors. Many states have passed other laws making life more difficult or more dangerous for trans people. That has led some people to come to Oregon to seek medical care or to simply move. We'll hear what this migration means on the next Think Out Loud. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR One app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. We'll be back tomorrow. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Ray and Marilyn Johnson, and the Susan Hammer Fund of the Oregon Community Foundation. Thank you.